DJing is, you know, a pretty, pretty big thing in kind of the, the Greek life and just kind of, you know, social party atmosphere. So I spent like Friday nights in my dorm with this uh, guitar center, like beginner <laughs> controller, le just learning how everything worked. And I started to get super just really into um, just mixing music. The University of Alabama's Culverhouse College of Business, it's Bama Means Business, a podcast that reveals amazing stories from those people who both inspire and make a difference in our community. I'm Cole Stevens, and on the show today, Nathan Yamaguchi. Nathan is a first-year MBA student with me in our cohort, graduating in 2024. He did his undergraduate here at Alabama, and we sat down to talk about his unique story and how he decided to end up going to the MBA program right after engineering. I hope you enjoy part one of our two-part series. We'll get started from your own personal journey. You went to undergrad here. Where did you originally graduate or where did you originally come from to Alabama? If you mind starting there. I'll just give you the whole backstory. So I grew up in a north suburb of Chicago. Um, and I always kind of knew I wanted to get away from that area. It was kind of a, a bubble in a sense. Um, it was it was a very affluent area. Um, and I think there was definitely times where I, I felt like the lack of um, experience outside of that kind of bubble, um, just understanding the world. And um, my mom had gone to Alabama. Both of her parents went to Alabama as well. Um, they, uh, her parents actually met at Alabama too. So there was, there was some lineage there. And during my college search, I was, you know, applying everywhere except for Illinois pretty much. And um, Alabama was at the bottom of the list, <laughs> dead last. Um, a lot of that was just because of kind of the reputation that it had in that kind of bubble that I was raised in. And it took my parents kind of almost like forcing me to visit the school before dismissing it and um, ended up, you know, seeing the engineering program there and just how much of a home I could already feel it was when I visited and um, immediately, uh, you know, decided to go there. And uh, another cool thing, the last um, conversation I had with my mom's dad, my grandfather, my late grandfather, um, was telling him that I was going to Alabama. No and way. He actually played um, during Bear Bryant's uh, coaching um, tenure. Um, so he, you know, that that was a really, really powerful um, kind of memory with him. So at Alabama, just got my undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering. Decided uh, I wanted to sharpen my skills more um, just professionally in business and um, first year in the MBA program. Now. Roll tied to that. Coming to Alabama, obviously, and as an engineering program, did you know you wanted to do engineering all growing up or was that more, hey, I got these skills, might as well use them? I think it was a little bit of both. Uh, I was, I've always been just a math person, math and science person. Um, and that was just kind of something I knew I was good at and going through the curriculum at Bama for the mechanical engineering. I think I, COVID definitely has something to do with this, but I think I just lacked 
really feeling the impact of a lot of the problems I was solving and kind of translating that to more real world applications. I think that's something I really kind of fall in love with, with the business school is everything that I'm doing, whether it's, um, you know, in a class for projects or on the case team, or even um, in my graduate position um, with the student government, it's, it's all problems that are, you know, immediately addressing um, issues that you can kind of see the impact immediately, which is a lot different than um, what I was used to in the undergraduate experience. Walk me through undergrad. Were you involved in any kind of fraternity, sorority life, anything like that? Yeah. So that was another, my, my campus involvement was another thing that led me to, um, MBA, just kind of looking at things in more of a business lens. Um, I was really involved in my fraternity, Sigma Tau Gamma, um, got to serve as, uh, the chapter president, um, my junior to senior year. Um, and we actually had to transition the entire membership from in a house on campus to an off-campus situation about 90 or hundred members. And that was pretty much the epitome of a, a business problem that I immediately had to address with just figuring out, okay, how do we even, how do we keep morale up? How do we keep guys from just dropping off the face of the fraternity? Um, so, you know, combating a lot of those issues were, were very um, kind of a catalyst for me um, going to the MBA program. And um, I was also really involved in student government um, I served as the chief of staff for um, the president at the time, Jill Fields. Um, that was a really cool experience getting to work with her and just managing um, all of the cabinet members that were um, implementing all the, the initiatives that she had in her um, platform. Um, and now I'm, I'm still a graduate assistant for the SGA. So I get to kind of look at other SEC SGAs and see what they're doing that we're not. Um, and to just kind of better um, emulate some of their um, structures and what they do. So bringing back the analytical mindset, obviously mechanical engineering is very general. You can do a lot with it. I've seen people go from anywhere from working for, you know, GM and Ford and the auto manufacturers to being a lot more specific and going into very niche fields. What did you see yourself exploring inside of mechanical engineering while you were in that program? Yeah, I'm going to be honest. I don't really know. I think, um, I guess one interest I had was in noise, which is really niche. Um, I took one, one noise control class. Um, some of the problems like that were, um, you know, looking at a situation where, you know, a noise source is coming from, you know, this distance and you've got these frequencies and, um, looking at like the nodes of, you know, where the, the magnitude of decibels peaks and a lot of like very niche questions like that. But, um, I don't think I really knew what I wanted to do like analytically in the program. I thought about doing crimson racing. Um, so like the more automotive clubs, but, um, they were so time intensive and I was really involved in, you know, the, um, Sigma Tau Gamma and student government that it was just not high on my priority list. Um, so yeah, like the, the, the analytical kind of skill set I got in the engineering program was really in a, in kind of a vacuum in the classes, in the classroom. Um, 
but yeah, like my, my interest in, in that regard is, I would say very, just like general generalist. So now this might be jumping a few steps ahead, but COVID hits. You are a sophomore at the time, correct? What was that like for engineers when you guys were all online and having to do all this stuff by yourself? Because it can be a very isolating industry when going through engineering courses. Yeah, I would say for engineers, it was probably honestly not as bad as a lot of the other um, majors and programs, really just in general, like across the country. I think, granted, you know, I'm not somebody that was building a race car (laughs) or, um, you know, working on long-term design projects. A lot of the stuff I was doing was very, you know, pen and paper, Excel. Um, a lot of things that you could easily communicate and convey over technology. So personally, I don't think it was too much of a challenge. I don't think it really hindered my ability to learn what the curriculum had to offer. Had I been in like Crimson Racing or Eco Car or, um, you know, things like that. I mean, like, or my fraternity and um, even student government, those were the areas that we were really hindered by because of our inability to, you know, meet regularly and have those social interpersonal connections, um, which is where like ideas start, you know, I think with taking, doing assignments for the ME program, you don't really need as much collaboration and bouncing ideas off people unless it's figuring out how to do something that you don't know how to do. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to those types of problems, they're usually in textbooks and you can kind of figure it out with pretty easy, easily accessible resources. So what I found out getting to know you over the past eight months now, I'd say, is that you're sort of a renaissance man of a lot of different things. You do everything from school to case team to obviously uh, you're a little bit of a baller on the court. Uh, can't let that go too much. Um, but another fun fact about you is that you're actually a DJ. Like, I know it's weird to say like a, a disc jockey over here. Can you tell us a story about how you got into uh, music production and that side of things in life? Why? Well, thank you for the Renaissance man. Because, <laughs> um, so I was really, I've always been just kind of drawn to music from an early age. Um, I, I was addicted to the game rock bands for a really long time. My, my dream aspiration until probably middle way through college was to be, um, a professional musician. And, um, you know, I was in, I was in bands in like middle school and high school when the last band I was in, um, finished, we, um, you know, kind of all went our separate ways. And I, I was always a drummer. So that was my like main instrument. And as the drummer, when we were writing all of our music, like in that high school band, I always wanted to have a greater hand <laughs> in writing the music because as the drummer, as you might imagine, it's, it's harder to have your ideas kind of um, come through. And from that, I really started to do a lot of producing in digital audio workstations. So I got really into that. I took um, two, two music theory classes. I took AP music theory 
um, and just kind of went all in on understanding music. And when I got to college, I was like, I'm in this fraternity now. And DJing is, you know, a pretty, pretty big thing in kind of the, the Greek life and just kind of, you know, social party atmosphere. So I spent like Friday nights in my dorm with this uh, guitar center, like beginner <laughs> controller, <laughs> just learning how everything worked. And I started to get super just really into um, just mixing music and, um, you know, just like playing music I liked too and mixing it together was, was just like really unique to me. Um, and I think a, a lot of the, a lot of the times when we think about DJs, we think about just the music selection that they play for me with DJing. What's so cool is actually everything that comes between the song selections. So how you get from one song to the next, you know, instead of just Spotify, bringing the volume down, bring it back up, you know, there's, there's a lot of creativity there and even just creativity with thinking about how you're going to get from one song to the next, how does that affect the song that you're going to choose to bring into the next track? Um, so, I mean, it, it's, it's really just like a kind of a game to me sometimes and appealing to, um, whatever, whoever the audience is and kind of setting the, the vibe and the atmosphere. Um, but yeah, so since, since I took that on, I've been doing it, uh, kind of in an entrepreneurial way for, um, I would say seriously for like two and a half years, okay. my first encounter with that was, um, actually playing for about a year, every single Friday at world of beer, really? um, the restaurant, uh, just locally in Tuscaloosa and they had never, never had, you know, live music on the weekends, um, or, you know, albeit a DJ and, you know, I kind of just took the initiative and proposed like, Hey, if you guys, you know, want to get this place going a little more on Friday nights, especially like right coming out of COVID, um, you know, like give me a shot. Right. And they didn't want to do it. So I said, you know, that's understandable. Like never had a DJ, never had live music on the weekends regularly. So I offered to, um, Offered to play for free this one Friday night in September. And it was just an absolute hit. You know, we had people staying real late, um, you know, not migrating to other bars that they probably would have gone to. So right. like, oh my gosh, there's it's a DJ playing right now. <laughs> great craft beer, world of beer. So that led to a really great relationship. And, um, you know, they had me back every single week. And as I kind of got more experienced uh, i started to get into um, other spaces um, like bear trap um, rounders and galettes um, i've even played in, in birmingham at uh, innisfree a few times so that experience really kind of led to um, kind of this entrepreneurial small business that um, i've really enjoyed being in the, the space so i'm naive i I appreciate DJs. I have no clue what goes into it. And I just say, you guys do a great job because you are hands down probably the best DJ I've ever witnessed on a stage. <laughs> okay, come on. Don't do yourself like that. But whenever I think about DJs, I think of 
someone who just like loves music knows how to read a crowd. What did you find made you successful and obviously being able to play at so many different venues that are very diverse in their crowds, but also their times? That's a great question. I like that question. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to break it down to three things. I would say the biggest one is humility. I think a lot of the times it's really easy as, um, really just any live music performers, you know, band, DJ, um, to get kind of wrapped up in your own, you know, like, Oh, I love this song. Like the song is so good. Or even just like, I made this song or I, I made this remix or I, I like found this edit and it's sick. You know, I want like, I want to play this so that everybody can see like how sick this is. Like, like I think you have to overcome that thought process and realize that it's not about you, um, which is hard in kind of our culture today. You know, a lot of the times we really want to brand ourselves and make it about us, um, especially in the music world. So um, humility, I think, is one of the biggest parts. The other two, um, being able just to be calm under pressure, and that just comes from experience. I mean, any given night, there's just songs that might you might throw in that what for whatever reason you know the crowd or the environment it's just not working um and you know people people will be rude you know they they will they will tell you when they don't like something and a big thing with just staying confident and you know doing well as a dj is just being able to just say okay like this this is not you know the the type of music they don't want to hear house music right now. They don't want to hear kind of like the um, maybe just like Justin Bieber pop right now. They, <laughs> they want to hear more rap or something. And just being able to kind of calmly navigate those um, realizations. And the third part is being able to realize, you know, those things and, um, you know, paying attention to the crowd. And you start to look at, you know, a group of 200 people or a hundred people or even 15 people as one person and kind of one entity. And, you know, you can start to see, you know, groups of people start to sing together and they start looking at each other and they're, they're dancing. And that becomes like this, this singular thing. And when you start to be able to see those, um, individual kind of components of a crowd come together as one thing, that's when you can really like read a crowd well um, and know how to pick the music. That's Nathan Yamaguchi, first year MBA student here at Manderson. And thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. If you're not a subscriber, do subscribe to our podcast wherever you get yours. And of course, check out our website at culverhouse.ua.edu to learn more about the Culverhouse College of Business and what it has to offer. And as always, roll tide.